faith has always been a priority. So coming into public life, you realize just how dependent of you you are, and how at times you, you just don't have the answers, and you gotta you gotta seek the Lord and and, and be in His Word, spending time there. So for those of you who are listening to this who don't know what whip refers to, it means John's number two with a bullet in, in the U.S. Senate <laughs> hierarchy. Hello there. This is George C., the host of See the Future, a podcast dedicated to interesting conversations with great people. We cover topics ranging from business and finance to religion, public policy, art, music, culture, literature, and so much more. Thanks for listening. So it's my great pleasure to once again welcome our audience to back to another episode of See the Future, where we talk about talk to great people about their interesting lives and the interesting stuff they have going on. And it is my great privilege today to visit with an old friend who I have deep admiration and respect for, and I haven't seen him too long. So <laughs> it's a real treat to get to get together and talk about John Thune and his family in South Dakota and all the good he's doing in Washington, D.C. And I, I got to start the conversation by saying, how are you surviving in the in the viper pit of partisan politics in Washington, D.C. these days, my friend? Well, it, as you know, George, it isn't easy. Um, and uh, it's it's a, the country's very divided and our politics reflects that. And so it's hard to get things done. It's in, not an environment that's conducive to that. And... Um, you know, I hope that that uh, uh, that we sort of survive this period. I think we're in a season right now where um, people are just kind of angry and uh, uh, in some cases like to be at odds. Part of that's the pandemic. But, you know, there's stuff that we can do that's uh, we need to be working on for the American people for our future. And so hopefully we can find ways to come together. But as you point out, it's uh, it ain't easy. And um, you kind of get shot at uh, and sometimes from both directions. So you just have to you have to roll with it. How you keep your sense of humor? Well, I think part of it is try not to take that stuff too personally, you know. And there's so much vitriol out there now, especially in the advent of social media. Uh, people kind of just vent and say whatever they want, and um, and you can you know you can get you can take that personally, or you can realize, look, this just kind of comes with the territory. So you have to be able to to find ways to. Um, uh, just keep keep your your sanity and your wits about you, and I think part of that's trying to maintain balance in your life, uh, doing things to stay sort of somewhat physically fit, emotionally, spiritually. Um, for me, those are all part of parts of the things I guess that I try and maintain in some level of equilibrium, and I think that helps uh, helps you um, be you know less personalize. Uh, some of the, the nasty stuff that's out there. So this is kind of an aside comment, but to your point about anger and lack of humor, I've noticed in our in our popular culture, the number of good comedies, either on stage or in the movies or on TV, has diminished dramatically. You see all this dark television yeah. going on streaming. Yeah. You know, it's just strange. It's a reflection yeah. of the of the unfortunately kind of morose times we're going through well, right now. It's really true. And my wife and I during the pandemic, and you probably did this too, um, you and your wife. But you know, sometimes you'll sit down and try and find something on Netflix or Amazon Prime or something to stream. And so much of the content out there was just dark. It's just dark. And my wife, we'd be like, ah, oh, we got to watch, get, find something lighter. You know, find something that's got some humor to it, or at least kind of takes us out of the doldrums. And um, but a lot of the content these days is oriented toward the dark side. So we're going to talk about you in South Dakota for the most part on this podcast, but I was thinking 
because we've got a lot of history. Most of it's a long time ago now, not recently, but I'll, I'll never forget after we had dinner in uh, at uh, Paul Nelson Farm in December of 2003, that Dick Wadhams called me a month later and said, we're going to come through Texas like you suggested, and we want you to lead it. <laughs> and right, I yeah. literally had a five-second pause on the phone because I'd never raised money before, ever. <laughs> and I said, I'll do it. And, and I hired a, a young lady to help me, and we took you to five cities, uh, and it was one of the top two or three political experiences I'd had. We raised over a quarter of a million dollars in five cities, $1,000 at a time back yeah, then. Yeah. And I think we ended up second um, – as the second highest fundraiser for you at around 650000 or something like that, which back then was a lot of money, to, lot of money. to Bill Frist. Yeah. But yeah. And yeah. I was with Bill and Steve Smith yeah. two days ago in Nashville. You were? So good. Yeah. That's so awesome. I'm on his foundation board, so a small world. So I, I, a lot of our audience is Texas and around the rest of the country, and probably some of them have heard your name and, and some of them haven't. I know your background really well, but would you mind just walking people through where you come from okay. and what shaped you early on to who you are today? Well, I um, come from a small town in South Dakota that nobody's ever heard of. Uh, called Murdo. Murdo. You've heard of it before, George. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and I recall... Uh, it's about as big as Dallas, very right? Fondly, yeah, just about as <laughs> big. Uh, very fondly, our uh, get-together up at Paul Nelson Farms where you... Uh, yeah, and, uh, and then I subsequently ended up doing a ton of work for us and helped us get here. But um, when I was growing up, I wasn't, my family wasn't involved in politics, so it wasn't something that I aspired to do early on in life. But I had a chance encounter as a freshman in high school with, a, uh, that time, a political figure. And um, he kind of was a sports fan, so he started following my sports career. I started following his political career, and after I got out of grad school at the University of South Dakota, he offered me a job to work. At that time, he was in, that, he'd been elected to the Senate here in Washington. So I came out here for... Um, Four years thereabouts. My wife and I had just been married, and you know, we at the time we we're like, "Ash, we do it? Shouldn't we do it?" And you know, it would be a good thing to have on your resume. And so we we did. But I kind of developed an interest in it and decided if the timing and the opportunity was ever right that I might take a run myself. But there isn't anything in my background that would suggest that this is work that I would be be doing. But I'm grateful for the opportunities I've had along the way for people who've helped me, people like yourself. And um, because you don't get any, you know, you don't get elected to office in this country on your own. It takes a team. And, um, but uh, yeah, I've just had uh, that small town experience. You know, when I was growing up, we didn't have the internet. Of course, as you know, we didn't have cell phones. And my life kind of began and ended at the city limits of Murdo. And I tell people a big day was going to Pier, which was an hour away. And that was a town of about 10,000 people. But they had a movie theater, a Taco John's, and a Dairy Queen. So that's uh, so nice. Just living, living large, <laughs> and uh, so yeah, pretty, uh, pretty basic. Uh, growing up, um, always been competitive, love sports. Got a chance in a small school to try everything. You know, I played all the sports. I played the tuba in the band. Little known fact. You Sam, probably one of the only ones you carried around. <laughs> that's yeah. about right. That's about right. Uh, so anyway, um, yeah, kind of just your normal, normal experience growing up. Um, you got an MBA, mm -hmm. and I think you'd have really, really good business instincts. So, do you feel like you just kind of caught the public service bug, and that steered you away from just having a a, a typical Steve Kirby outstanding business career? Because you probably would have had a career a lot like him if you'd gone that route. Well, Steve, I probably Steve done very well, um, and uh, I'm not sure I would have done. But but I do know that um, I, I'm interested in that. And, you know, the, the, the business background, which is very versatile, can apply in a lot of ways. And I've used it a lot in this job, just on tax policy and trade policy and having an understanding of some of those things. Uh, um, 
you know, with respect to the economy. But uh, I certainly don't profess to be an expert in anything. And guys like you who have made uh, done well in business, um, I value their input because I think it shapes how we do things here. And when you're making policy, you want to put policies in place that are conducive to growth in our economy and um, you know jobs and wages. And, and you really have to, I think, listen to the people out there who are creating the jobs and making things happen. Well, I did one of these with our, our buddy Steve Daines about oh, two months ago, and <laughs> yeah, I had no idea guy. that Steve had done a ton of work in China with Procter & Gamble, yeah. and I, I've done work in Hong Kong. I've invested in a lot of hedge funds and private equity funds in Hong Kong. I spent a lot of time there, and you really can't understand something complicated in another part of the world unless you eyeball it and yeah. you know see it and touch it and get, get all in with it, so, so that's invaluable when you can be a be around various circumstances that other people just read about. It yeah. just makes a big difference. It does. There's no substitute for per, you know for personal experience with something, and um, and and for the you know and there's great value in people who know that world. And I think it's uh, in politics again. If you want to move the country in the right direction, you've got to be listening to the people that are moving in the right direction. Yeah, and it's it's a very very complicated world. So the more it is trusted voices you have talking to you, the better. So I have lots of weaknesses, but memory's not one of them. I, re I remember everything, and I remember the first time uh, we met. Well, the second time after we'd been to South Dakota, when you came and spoke at Legacy at our first conference, mm -hmm. and somebody asked you a question about Calvinism and mm -hmm. your faith and everything, and you gave this very uh, master's or PhD level response on Calvinist theology and all that. So that's a, that's a lead in to ask you, would you talk about your faith and how that's important to you and how that shaped you and your family and, and kind of the way you make decisions? Yeah. Well, yeah, it really grounds me. And, and my parents, um, my mom and dad, uh, when they met, were not, uh, uh, were not believers. They weren't people. I mean, they were people who were involved kind of in a church, but on a very sort of superficial level. Uh, but they came to a uh, uh, you know, personal relationship with Christ later in life in their, in their marriage. They were struggling in their marriage. They had, by that time, three kids. And, um, and it transformed and changed their lives. And so they, it was very important to them to give us a good foundation. So I grew up in a Christian home, and you know, faith has always been a priority. And so coming into public life, you realize just how dependent you, you are and how, at times, um, completely uh you you just don't have the answers and you've gotta you gotta seek the lord and and, and be in his word spending time there and so i try to make time for devotions and prayer it's a priority for my family and when we raised our kids and now we got grandkids um we just uh really, i'm jealous for right yeah well you'll be having your 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 time's coming george you gotta, i think you're gonna have a lot i'd like to see them get married before they have babies <laughs> yeah, well, also that's, for the record. That's, that's also for the record too i used to say the same thing <laughs> But it's just it is it's it's foundational to um, kind of who who I am, who our family is, and and the way we view life, and it's through the lens of um, how can we uh, do kingdom work, how can we uh, you know look at making the world a better place, uh, be difference makers, and, uh, and and point people to uh, a relationship with Christ. And. Do you? I'm interested if you find it refreshing because to me there was a, a public square dialogue about taking Jefferson's letter about the wall between church and state, which yeah. is nowhere in the Constitution, and trying to trying to basically banish faith from the yeah. First Amendment and the public square and all that. 
And lately, whether it's Amy Coney Barrett or some of the recent religious liberty decisions by the court, it seems like there's there's become more of a realization that if you're really going to enforce the First Amendment, yeah. that free exercise is, is a big, big part of that. Do you feel that in, in Washington, that that shifted a little bit, especially from a judicial pers- perspective? Well, I hope that the courts um, are consistent or, or, I should say, show great fidelity to the First Amendment, obviously, and because everybody makes a big deal out of the separation of church and state, which, as you point out in Jefferson's letter uh, to a Baptist church, was the first time that sort of wall of separation was mentioned. But in the First Amendment, it talks about, you know, um, you shouldn't ban the free exercise thereof. You know, it talks about, you know, the church and the state not infringing on each other, but when it comes to faith, that people ought to be able to exercise, freely exercise their faith. And, and I think that's, again, foundational to our republic and uh, valuing um, people and faith in the public square. Now, the institutions themselves, our founders, including Jefferson, went to great lengths to try and create that sort of that separation. But when it came to um, people of faith being influential and helping shape the nation from its very formative stages, uh, it was essential. And they all acknowledge that. They all acknowledge how important that was. And a knowledge of history and context is so important because Jefferson's writing to the Baptists. Yeah. And it says there shall be no establishment of a state religion Correct. in the Constitution. And everybody in the U.S., especially the Baptists, were worried that the Anglicans were going to come over here and just make everybody Anglican. Right. Yeah. And they, they wanted to be able to practice their faith however they saw fit. And today that's been expanded, obviously, to Islam and, and Judaism and atheism or, you know, whatever, whatever you want to believe. So what's your favorite part of your job? Um, I think probably interacting with people. I'm kind of a social people person, which made the pandemic particularly hard for me. Um, but, you know, I kind of get energy from that and I learn a lot. You know, I, there are just there are people out there who are living lives that uh, where they know a lot of things that I don't know. And one of the best ways to learn is to hang around with people that are that are doing things that uh, I don't have a lot of background or experience with, but certainly can benefit from. So. It's probably the the interaction. I mean, I you know I like the policy stuff too, and it's it's uh, you know kind of digging deep into um, tax policy, or is it something that's interesting to me? I, I'm kind of a, a geek that way. But when you ask me what I enjoy the most, it would be the yeah the people part of the business. So I don't want you to pick one because that gets awkward. But can you can you mention some of your colleagues that you really have enjoyed, not just professionally, but also as, as friends and people that are fun to have a Coke or a beer with, too. You know, um, there are some there are some remarkably uh, talented and unique individuals <laughs> in this line of work. And so, you know, it's a, it's a diverse group. But, you know, I, I, on a regular basis, we kind of put together groups of people. And, and in my job is the web that's helpful, too, to kind of hear what people are thinking. And so we try and organize different groups. But it's just a, it's a diverse group. I mean, Lindsey Graham, of course, is incredibly entertaining. He's really funny. Um, you know, he's a great dinner guest and somebody to hang out with because he's got you laughing half the time. Um, you know, I, I do a lot of things with the people in my neighborhood. My colleague, uh, Mike Grounds, is a wonderful partner. Uh, my fellow center from South Dakota, the North Dakota delegation. Of course, John Holvin is an entertaining guy. Uh, we spend a lot of time together. And Kevin Kramer, who I go back to 1990 with, and we were both executive directors of the Republican parties in our two states. Um, you know, the, the, the Joni Ernst in Iowa, uh, the Nebraska senators. So there's a kind of a regional thing there, you know, Brasso next door, um, you know, Steve Daines, great guys you mentioned out in Montana. Um, 
it's it's hard to focus in. They all have different attributes. Mm-hmm. I mean, it kind of depends on what you're looking for. Yeah. And if you're looking to laugh, <laughs> you know, Lindsay Marco's very funny. Got a great personality and sense of humor. Um, but uh, everybody brings different attributes and strengths to this. And mm-hmm. I think what you try and do is integrate those and figure out a way to maximize them and help them you know, contribute to the team and make the team successful. So for those of you who are listening to this who don't know what WIP refers to, it means John's number two with a bullet in, in the U.S. Senate hierarchy. <laughs> and you don't get to be number two with a bullet behind somebody who's been number one for a very, very long time unless you're very well liked. You can't be loathed in the Senate and be voted number two. How, how did that take place? Was it just building relationships over time and, and being recognized as somebody they wanted to be in a position of leadership, you also don't want to put a till of the hunt as whip because then no. your life's miserable, right? right? Exactly. No, you don't. It's, um, I, I think part of it is one of the things about in the job, you have to be a good listener. And so um, through the years that I've been here, you, you do develop relationships. And I think you, you learn how to listen, find out what's important to people. And that makes you more effective um, if you are trying to win them over on a particular issue to know kind of which, what things make them tick. You know, how do you appeal to a certain person or who do you, who can talk to them? Who in your conference has the best relationship? And you don't get that without building those relationships. And I think part of it too is just developing a trust. I mean, people have to trust you that you're going to be good for your word. And, um, and you know, I, so I, I think it's a, it's, it's a relational thing. And, and people have this perception of it, yeah, that you're cracking the whip and, and uh, it's very, Good luck very, with that. very heavy handed. But as you know, <laughs> in the Senate, every, every senator is a king or a queen, especially in a narrow, narrowly divided Senate. So you really have to uh, approach people respectfully. Um, and that doesn't mean that you can't uh, be uh, firm and uh, maybe sometimes aggressive if you need to be and, and trying to prevail in an argument. But ultimately, it does come down to it's relationships, it's it's respect, mutual respect and trust, and I think being a good listener. So I think you're well aware, I think you'd be a great president. Is that something you would ever look at in the future? I know you probably get that question a lot. It's one to very effectively laugh off or duck, but it, you know, coming from me, it's, it's serious. I, I think you'd be a great president. Is that something you'd ever entertain in the future, or do you think you've found your role where you are? Well, I appreciate it. Thank you, George. Um, I just think that the, the president presidency has evolved and changed a lot in the last few years. And I'm not sure. I think now people are looking for somebody that's got a big celebrity. Um, and, uh, you know, and part of the, in this day and age, especially with social media platforms, you kind of have to live out there and develop that following and become, develop that brand. And um, that's, you know, in the old days, it might have been there. There may have been a pathway for me there, but in the, in the, what it takes in the modern era, I'm not sure it's something that I'm probably cut out to do. But um, how would your family feel about it? You know, I think my family would support uh, anything that I felt called to do. And to me, it is really about being called. I think you 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 know there there is always a distinction between being driven and being called. You're you're a driven guy. I'm a driven guy. Type A, um, you know, always wanting to you you're very competitive and and that's the way I am too. But in the end, um, to do a job like that, it has to be something that you really feel called to do, mm-hmm. not driven to do. And there is a distinction. And I think the call is something where you just feel very at ease and at peace about it and um and, and you have a, a sense that uh, this is what you're supposed to be doing, and I and you gotta have the fire in the belly. Yeah, right. It's a beat down, it without any down. doubt. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, how long do you want to do this? 
Well, um, we'll see. I mean, I, I've got to face the voters again in uh, next next year. Um, haven't made any final announcements about uh, that yet. But I uh, wish your opponent, if you decide to run again, rots a rock, as they say. <laughs> Thank you. I, uh, <laughs> he hears he's going to need it. Well, it's. Um, but you know, I mean, you, 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 there is a point I think where you feel like, and I'm, I'm a big believer that you need new ideas and, and you, you want to be making a difference. And uh, uh, a famous uh, Texan, who I probably am very far apart from politically, uh, Don Henley, when asked, you know, when do you know it's time to quit something, he said, uh, when it quits contributing to you or you quit contributing to it. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said, if you listen to your intuition, you'll know. But, yeah. So anyway, that's not uh, that's not gospel, but uh, ultimately it does come down. It's a very personal decision, personal you know that you have to make anytime you're going to commit to six years. It's a family decision, and obviously you hope uh, shaped by um, the the higher cause, uh, you know, the causes that are greater than yourself that you serve. And and uh, and my faith commitment, my faith journey is really important to me, and I it's just something that I. To this day, feel like I need need to feel a sense of call about. Well, I, I would espouse, and you don't have to comment on this, that a, a lot of your peers in, in politics don't know when to quit. But I think <laughs> you will definitely know when it's time to go do something else and be super successful at that, too. So I'm, I'm confident you'll know the right time, as will your family. So I want to come back to the young people, because I always make a lot of comments to Gen Z and millennials of good advice and good ways to live your life. And you said about listening. Mm-hmm. And I had a relative who was governor of Texas, and I I spent time with him when I was a kid and sat in on all his meetings, and I noticed that in his meetings, he hardly spoke. And um, I asked him one time, I said, I said, Papa, you're the you're the most powerful person in every meeting you ever go to unless you're with the president. Why don't you say very much? And he goes, George, how much do you learn when you're talking? And I went, okay, I get it. Good point. So I know you're you've got a tight schedule. So I'm going to close with this uh, and say it's it's great to to catch up even in a formal podcast uh, way instead of informally. It's great to see you. And uh, I would just ask you if you were going to talk to your grandchildren. Mm-hmm someday and they're 18, 19, 20, 21 years old and they're, they're starting their lives and they're, they're beginning their adult journey and trying to figure out what they're going to do. Uh, what would you advise them to do to be living a life of, of success and consequence and, and uh, what's the right word? Um, significance. Yeah, and, yeah. and by success, I don't mean money. I mean, I mean success in the faith-based way that we yeah. would look at it well i mean i think you're you you want to encourage them to to lay up treasures in heaven and um and live lives down here of purpose and the journey down here obviously for those of us who believe that um you know that uh, heaven follows after um that the things that you do down here are are you know going to echo and uh that's actually a line from a movie but um i do think that you know young people today are Sometimes there's a lot of there are a lot of pressures on them. Um, they they live in a world where there's a lot of distractions, and and can get really easily distracted. And I think trying to convince them uh, to to live a life of purpose, to know exactly you know what it is uh, you're about, and to let your uh, your life and your example and the work that you do be an extension. Uh, of that person and be true to yourself. Don't try to be somebody you're not. Um, don't be try to be somebody that other people think you should be. But God has made you unique um, with individual skills and talents and gifts. 
uh, use them for his glory and um, you know live lives of purpose and serve causes that are greater than yourselves and I always tell people you know that the, the purpose-driven life book by Rick Warren the first sentence is it's not about you and, uh, and I try to when I talk to young people can convey that too that if you wake up in the morning and, and remember it's not about me um, it takes the pressure off of you uh, to perform but it also frees you to serve other people and I think ultimately that's kind of what you want to see in that next generation well well said and great to see you and thanks for taking George, the time my friend good seeing you my friend and uh, best of your family uh, hopefully we'll do this in a less formal setting here soon either in Texas or South Dakota I expect that that would be great thanks for listening to see the future this is George C and I'll hope you join us for our future conversations Adios days on the wide open prairie Nights in the canyon are gone Stephen is dead, Johnny got married Me, I'm here all on my own, I'm all on my own Used to have nights on the town of Laredo Spinning them girls across the floor now I'm too old for dancing, too far gone for the whiskey, so I don't go down there no more. Now it's adios days on the wide open prairie, nights in the canyon are gone. Stephen is dead, Johnny got married, me I'm here all on my own. Top hand when he was a young man, he wrote for the Diamond Bar J. He'd push all day long on the back of his pony. At nighttime, he'd gather the strays. Well, he hated the cities, cussed all the railroads, said they would lead us to fall. Now we have streetcars. Cowboys are dying. Guess he weren't too far from wrong. Now it's Adios days on the wide open prairie. Nights in the canyon are gone. Stephen is dead. Johnny got married. Me, I'm here all on my own. Yeah, Adios days on the wide open prairie nights in the canyon are gone Stephen is dead Johnny got married me I'm here all on my own I'm all on my own